What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Championship Leadership Podcast. This is your host, Nate Bailey. And before we get too far into our episode and our guest for today, I want to direct you to my website, natebailey.org. You can get a free copy of my audiobook, The 100 Mile Mindset. You can check out some of the previous uh, Championship Leadership Podcast episodes we've had, as well as get more information on our world classic live experiences that we have with CL24 Championship Leadership 24 Hour Leadership Experience and our four-day ULW experience, uh, Unleash the Leader Within. As we get to to today's guest, Michael Brody Waite, it's kind of crazy, it's a small world. He lives currently in Franklin, Tennessee, which is just outside of Nashville, which also just happens to be exactly where we we conduct our live ULW experience. Uh, uh, We've been doing it the past uh, two iterations, and it's right in Franklin, Tennessee, so small world might have him actually come out and be a part of our experience being that it's right there in his backyard. So excited about that. But today's guest, Michael Brody Waite, he, uh, he's got an incredible life story around addiction, drugs and alcohol, recovery, um, creating a Fortune 500 company that he went on to sell. And now he works with uh, large companies, Fortune 500 companies and their leadership uh, he's got a book called Great Leaders Live Like Drug Addicts. And uh, so an interesting twist on on his journey and how he takes that into uh, these CEOs and uh, C-level and executives of you know companies like Google and others and helps them uh, to be great leaders just like drug addicts do inside of their recovery process. So I thought that was very interesting and unique. And we talk a lot about that inside this episode. Uh, you can follow him at michaelbrodywaite.com. Uh, uh, you can find him on Instagram as well, michaelbrodywaite. And that's B-R-O-D-Y-W-A-I-T-E. We'll have that all linked up in, in the show notes as well. But uh, without further ado, let's introduce you to Michael Brody Waite. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Championship Leadership Podcast. And uh, I'm excited. We got Michael Brody Waite here from Franklin, Tennessee, just outside of Nashville. Uh, thanks for being here, man. Appreciate it. Yeah, dude. I appreciate being here, man. 
Yeah, we were just talking uh, super small world because I, I run one of my the ULW experience that some of you might have heard me talk about in Franklin, Tennessee. So uh, just a little bit weird, but uh, it's just a, a weird cool way of promoting that event. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually the whole reason. Mike, I'm not I don't like your uh, content. I just uh, I'm here. Yeah, I just found out you were from Franklin and yeah, and had to get you on there so I could sneak it in. <laughs> but uh I want to definitely get into your story and, and uh, we already know where you're from, but what you're all about, what you're up to. Uh, but first and foremost, championship leadership is the name of the podcast. And I ask almost everyone this question, um, probably a handful that I haven't for whatever reason, but what does championship leadership mean to you when you hear that? Woo. Uh, I mean, so it, two different things. So the, the first one is a traditional, just as I grew up as a kid watching sports, I think of, you know, a, a Super Bowl winning NBA championship winning athlete. Yeah. Um, I grew up with Joe Montana and, and Steve Young being a California boy. Um, and just the, the ability to do the next right thing um, that makes everybody better, no matter what the pressure is, um, you know, in terms of the athletes that I see. For me, I, I would liken that more to just even what does leadership look like? And to me, it's, it's leading yourself and, and realizing your potential um, instead of letting uncomfortable work stop you from becoming the person that you're supposed to be. Because inevitably, when you lead yourself, you're more effective at leading others. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And uh, it's awesome. I, I love asking that question because I always get uh, a different answer. And uh, it's amazing. I don't know, 260 episodes now or something. And we've sliced it a lot of different ways. So it's, it's always good to hear the different perspectives on that. Um, but why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? You have a powerful story and, uh, uh, you know, kind of give us, give us a look into your life and the path that you've been on and how that's gotten you to where you are today and, and what, what is it that you're up to today? Yeah, man. So I'm a California boy who found his way in the South. So I say y'all and dude equally well. Um, but my story really starts when I was uh, 23 years old. Um, I had been in college and I had become the thing that my parents were always scared that I would become. And that was a full-blown drug addict and alcoholic. And so for me, um, my entire obsession, I was only focused on one thing in life and that was to use from the minute I woke up to the minute I passed out at night. Um, so every single day it would be, what is it going to take to get the money, to get drugs, to get high and then stay high as long as possible, pass out, rinse, repeat, do it again. Um, I didn't care who I hurt. I didn't care who I had to steal money from. Um, and so I was kicked out of college. I was fired from my job. I was evicted from my home. My car was repossessed. Uh, my, uh, you know, you can laugh at this actually, cause I'm starting off pretty heavy, but like my doctor said, the only thing higher than me was my liver enzymes <laughs> um, at the age of 23. You don't want to hear that. Um, but you know, I was, doctor. Uh, I, I, I'd been there. I hadn't been there a long time. Um, there's also some other funny stories from that doctor's visit, but <laughs> you know, at the age of 23, I, I was homeless. The only thing keeping me from living on the street was my buddy's couch. And, and he wanted me to go and. Uh, I was at the end, man, and 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 I truly wanted to die. Um, and I was throwing up blood. My body was shutting down, and I didn't know how to live. And then, uh, lucky for me, I got clean as a last ditch effort. I went to rehab, um, and so my clean date September first, two thousand two. And so now, um, if you flash forward eighteen plus years later, 
I go around the world and I work with leaders at companies like Google and Dell and startups and nonprofits. And I teach them that great leaders live like drug addicts and they all go, what the heck are you talking about? Um, and that's based off of the career that I've had since I've gotten clean and some of the things that I learned that addicts do to recover and how that can actually make leaders become truly great. Yeah, that's a powerful transition there. Um, we Let's go back real quick to something you said. Um, you didn't care who you hurt. So do you really, are you really at a point where you, you don't care or is there something in the back of your head that's like, man, I kind of care, but I can't help myself. Uh, I definitely, it started off as I don't want to hurt anyone. And then it's, um, I don't want to hurt them, but I don't know what else to do. But at some point you get so numb and so locked into it. I mean, if it's really hard to care about others when you don't care about yourself. Yeah. Like yeah. if you're in a, if you're in an SUV before they had rollover protection and you're doing 90 miles per hour on Sunset Boulevard and you take a hard right because you're hoping that the car flips, yeah. it's really hard to be sensitive to how you're hurting your family and your friends. Right. Right. And so I think down deep somewhere, the real Michael, I'm sh I know had regret, yeah. but I was so busy using to deal with that regret and that pain. It's just a vicious downward spiral where I am, I have more pain. So I seek more numbing. So I have more pain. So I seek more numbing. And the most powerful thing I'm feeling is I need to get high again. And I don't care what it takes to make that happen. What, what, so what, what started it all? Was it just like, uh, was it, you know, just kind of the recreational having a good time as a young kid to spiraling into something out of control or what was it for you? Yeah. I always feel like my bottom isn't, isn't low enough for some people. Actually, when I was in rehab, I had, a, I had one guy tell me that, um, I wasn't a real drug addict and to get out and he said, oh, come really? back when I'm using IV drugs. And I was like, okay, seriously, <laughs> I'm not a bad enough drug addict for the drug yeah. addicts. Yeah. Yeah. But so for me, I mean, I had, you know, I, I had a normal childhood parents, like, you know, I mean, there's some abnormal things in, in terms of how they raised me that really hurt me. Um, but I, I didn't have to worry about my safety. You know, I, I had access to the main things that a human being needs. What I lacked was my parents sheltered me like crazy and they wouldn't let me um, experience pain and deal with uh, consequences. And so for me, by being overprotected, I had no idea how to deal with life in life's terms. And when I was 16 years old, I was really struggling. My parents sat me down and they, they said, you know, hey, we have something to tell you. And I'm like, okay, what? And they said, your father's an alcoholic. Um, he's been in recovery. He hasn't had a drink since he was, since you were six months old. And it turned out that my old man had, um, I don't know why you call him an old man, but well, he is old. Now, right. So yeah, okay. It's appropriate. But yeah. it, it, it turned out my dad had come home from a bar when I was six months old at 2am, like every morning, uh, every night. And he had picked me up out of my crib, dropped me. And he's a good Midwestern dude from Michigan. That's all about others and not himself. And he looked himself in the mirror and he said, I can be a father or I can be a drunk, but I can't be both. And he's one of those rare people that was able to quit and he didn't use a program. He did what we call white knuckling it, which doesn't lead to good things that I experienced as a child, but he hadn't had a drop and they told me not to touch alcohol and drugs. Well, for a kid that doesn't feel like he understands how to be comfortable in his own skin. If you tell me about alcohol and drugs, I'm going to start to get curious. And so I actually, that made me want to go use them. Um, and so then I go to college to get away from my family and get away from everything that bothered me. And I just started, you know, one night um, drinking and, and, and I was getting really drunk and, and I was watching this movie, a lifetime movie, and I felt really lost. 
And it was a lifetime movie about an alcoholic and the guy lost everything. And all he did was stay drunk all the time. And I had the most absurd thought. And my thought was my whole life, everybody's been telling me that I don't reach my potential, whether it was sports, whether it was academics, I was like, I know I can become that. And so for the first time in my life, I set my intent on realizing my potential and I became what my parents didn't want me to. And I decided I was going to become an alcoholic. And, um, and then I became a drug addict when I tried to stop using the alcohol and then I decided to put them together and everything fell apart. Yeah. Crazy. So, so what do you do as a parent then if, you know, like, like you said, so, <laughs> you know, the comment of if you t- talk to your kids about never touching this or that, the sometimes they end up going that route. What's, what route do you take with your children? So my kids, you know, I've been clean over 18 years, almost 19 years now. And I've been able to watch a lot of my friends um, that had kids younger. Uh, my kids are two and a half and, and almost a year old. And, and so I've had a chance to watch what works because one of our biggest fears is that our kids are going to end up like addicts or alcoholics or, or addicted to something. And so my observation is, is that um, what we do in 12-step recovery is we don't give advice and we don't tell people what to do. We share our experience. The most successful parents of kids that became addicts were the ones that simply shared their experience of working their recovery program. And so I have a friend named Dave that, you know, when I came to my first uh, meeting, his kids were like three years old and they were on the ground coloring at the meeting. You know, those kids are grown. Um, and I've seen a lot of kids grow up that watch their parents work a program. And what ends up happening is if they do become an addict, they get clean or sober more. They're more likely to get clean or sober and more likely to do it younger because unlike me, what my father did not model is their parents have modeled the solution that there is a better way. Um, and so what I would just say is that you cannot stop, you cannot control an addict. Um, you can control how much pain they experience. And that is get out of the way of giving, of letting them experience pain. Pain is the only thing that stops an addict. So like the whole thing around enabling, that's legit. You, I, I talk to parents all the time that are like, oh, I don't want my child to be out on the street. I'm like, if you don't put them out on the street, it's like you're, you're uh, digging a grave for them yourself. So you got to let them experience pain. But for me personally, since I have the great opportunity and fortune to be working a program, um, I'm going to share my experience with my children. So at the very least, they are not... Um, uh, confused about whether there's an effective solution for their problem. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I love that. That's great advice. Um, But I'll say for you normies out there, that's what we call you guys. My wife loves being called a normie. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Um, I would say the, 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 the best thing that you can do is do not be a buffer between your child. If they're, if you think they're an addict, do not be a buffer between them and their consequences. Yeah. Pain is the only thing that stops an addict. Yeah. Yeah. Which, can be hard to do, right? As a parent, extremely hard. Oh, it's, it's, I mean, I, I know all this and we'll see how well I execute it. Right. It's one thing to draw up a game plan. Right. It's another thing to execute it, but yeah, I can't, I mean, I can't imagine what that feels like yeah. for parents, but I do know that that's, the, that's the reality. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, so you went through rehab and, and, uh, you kind of sped through that part of the story to like, all right, now I work with an executive yeah. Google and all these large companies. So what was, how, how did that path come about and uh, teaching them how to live life like a drug addict? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I said, I, I, my book's title is great leaders of like drug addicts. And that's the title of the workshop that I do. And, um, and so basically 
so my clean date is September 1st, 2002. And as much as I know about addiction, I also know about leadership. So the first eight years of my career, I worked my way up from being a temporary rep at a kiosk in a mall for a Fortune 50 company to having a $250 million PL, 19 direct reports with no college degree in my 20s. Um, I left that job at the height of the recession. Um, it was Dell, Dell, back when it was a Fortune yeah. 50 company. Yep. Yeah. And I left that company at the height of the recession to co-found at the time. Um, if you wanted to make a healthcare appointment, the only way you could do it was over the phone. And I thought that was stupid yeah. because you could schedule an appointment for your cat, your car, or your hair, but you couldn't do it for your body. Yeah. And I had a bad experience where I wanted to see a doctor and I couldn't, and I couldn't schedule online and they had me waiting forever. And so at the height of the recession in 2010, um, I thought it'd be a great idea to uh, co-found a startup where our mission was to create online scheduling for healthcare. We were the first online scheduling company for healthcare. Wow. And we maxed out, I maxed out my credit card. I drained my bank account, withdrew from my 401k. And I bet everything on a company where I had no experience with healthcare. We had no patents. We had no investors. It was the middle of the recession. Um, it was basically stupid. And we were, were just- married you know, at the time? Uh, I was. I was married at the time. And- How um, was that with your wife? Uh, the last chapter, I'll, 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 I'll tell you this. The last chapter of my book is called The Tale of Two Divorces. Okay. And, <laughs> and if you flash forward five years after I founded the company, it's about how I had to divorce my wife and my business partner in the same year and sell the company that I love. Oh, wow. Um, so it did not go well. My wife, it, my wife was, was supportive initially of me, me, me starting the company, okay. um, but she became my biggest uh, critic. Yeah. And, and we just, you know, I, I don't wish her any ill will. We just yeah. shouldn't have, should have never gotten married. I knew the day that I stood up to say, I do that. I should have walked away. Um, and, uh, so I'm, I'm now happily married to the person I was supposed to be with. And one of the things I said to my wife, when I proposed to her, is I said, I know what it's like. It's a lot harder to cancel a marriage than it is a wedding. So I'm not scared to cancel this. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't work out between now and the wedding. Yeah. But um, so anyhow, so I, I started that company with a partner um, and we in, in, in just a couple of years built an Inc. 500 company that was one of the fat we grew 20,000 percent six years. We won best place to work awards, wow. um, all this kind of crazy stuff that was just amazing. And most of what I did as CEO of that company was what recovering addicts do in recovery to scale and lead myself like. And, and, and that's what I taught my team. And so we ended up getting acquired by a publicly traded company. Um, and after that, I took over a nonprofit where I helped 2000 entrepreneurs a year start a grow business in Nashville, um, Tennessee. And um, while I was doing that, people would tell me my leadership style was different. And I would just kind of tell them, well, I just do what, what drug addicts do to recover. And someone told me I should do a TED talk. I'm like, yeah, right. And, um, and so I did a TED talk for TEDx Nashville in March of 2018, the title is Great Leaders Do What Drug Addicts Do. And about a year after I did it, when I was um, trying to figure out what to do with all of this knowledge that I had, um, that TED Talk went viral and we went from like 2,500 views a month to 2,500 views a day. Wow. And now it's got 2.6 million views in like 25 countries. And um, that's what led me to leave the nonprofit, write the book. And so today, um, I'm the leader and the founder of a program that we call the mask free program, which is crazy thing to call something when you're in the middle of a pandemic, but it's based off of an experience I had in rehab 18 years ago. And what we do is we've created essentially the equivalent of a 12 step program, um, except it, what it does is it teaches people how to be authentic leaders. You don't need to be a recovering addict. 
Um, and we teach people uh, what we call the mastery program and teaches people how to say no to things they want to say yes to, how to share their weaknesses, how to have difficult, com- difficult conversations and how to share their unique perspective so that they don't, quote unquote, wear the mask and hide their true selves. And what we found is um, with these really big companies that we work with, they have a lot of the fundamentals for leadership down. They don't have the fundamentals for like, how do you overcome the fear of saying no when you know you need to and you feel pressure to say yes? How you overcome the fear of sharing that weakness when you're the CEO and everybody thinks that you're supposed to have the answer. Um, Those are the intangible things that most people don't actually know how to do. Um, and that's what we go around and we teach people. And it's all based off of my experience um, running my company and working in corporate America and running the nonprofit. Love it. What, um, who are some of the championship leaders along your journey that have really impacted you? And, and what are some of the characteristics of those people that, that, have, that you've maybe even taken to mold in, you into who you are as a leader? Okay, so I'm going to give you probably the most unconventional answer you've ever gotten. Maybe. Um, coaches are great. Mentors are great. CEOs are great. I think they all suck as leaders compared to a sponsor in a 12 step program. The fundamental difference is when you get a sponsor, when you're recovering from addiction, their job is to share their experience, working a proven system for leading yourself. And the way they do that is by sharing all the ways they messed up. Instead of, I'm an expert, let me show you how to do this, blah, blah, blah. What they do is they say, okay, you're struggling with that. Let me tell you about when I had a problem with that. And here's how I messed up or here's how I used the process to be successful. And so my sponsor, um, when I first got clean, like he taught me more about how to lead myself than I've ever learned at a Fortune 50 corporate training. So I'd say like you say, there's that mask or that facade, I think, for the most part in those settings. Right. Yeah. Every other setting you're supposed so like in in recovery, we inverse the stigma around be vulnerability. We don't like you and we kick. We don't actually kick anyone out, but like we don't like you and you basically feel unwelcome if you can't get real about your challenges, because there's nothing realer than saying I'm Mike and I'm a recovering drug addict. Like, like I had to do that. And so that's the culture that we create. And so as a result, you're cool and successful, the more you can own your weaknesses, which is a complete inverse of when you are on a sports team, when you're leadership in business, when you're leading, whether it's clergy, like you name it. Um, We expect our leaders to have all the answers, but actually uh, in recovery, we value the people that ask the questions. Yeah. Right. And now it makes total sense because that's when people really are able to feel comfortable to open up to you when you're when you're willing to go there first yourself right yeah and also i mean and this is not true for all people that are in leadership but addicts are really hard-headed we don't want anyone to tell us what to do yeah but you know what we're really good at is getting what we want so if someone says hey man so like i'll give you an example um I was really fortunate that my roommate in rehab um, had been an entrepreneur who had had a drinking problem, got sober, stopped working his program, founded a company, took it public. And on the night that he took it public, someone handed him a glass of champagne and he drank it and relapsed because he had replaced his recovery with his addiction to his building his company. Yeah. And so he ends up in rehab with me. 
And so when I founded my company, I call him up. I've got like, you know, seven or eight years clean. And I'm like, Hey man, how do I make sure I don't make the mistake that you made? And he's like, all right, let me, let me tell you about all the mistakes that I made. I stopped working my program when I was on the road. I didn't go to meetings. Like he started listing all the things that he did. And I'm like, okay, I'm not going to do those things. I was like, okay, so when it works, what did you do? Okay. I did this, 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 and this, but he led with his weaknesses. He led with his failures. Yeah. And so that, that, if he had just come out to me and said, Hey Mike, what you have to do is X, Y, and Z. I would have been like, okay, dude, like slow right. your roll. I'm trying to lead myself over here. Yeah. And so, you know, it just, it's when people, it's so hard for people to just simply share their experience, um, especially in the world of social media. We all want to tell other people what to do yeah. because um, ironically, it's a longer term gratification to share your experience with someone. It's a lot shorter term gratification to tell them what to do. Yeah. Right. What's, um, I don't think you mentioned it or maybe you did, but what, so I know you said sometimes like you're not even, uh, you're not a hard enough drug addict to be here at this program, but what's, what, what was it for you? What was, what was the moment? Was there a moment where you're like, I, re, I gotta go do this. You said September 1st, which stuck out to me. That's my son's birthday. Uh, September. Uh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, what was that? What was that moment for you that, that changed everything to get you to go to rehab? So, um, my parents had asked me to house it. Um, they were going to be gone for 30 days and like, they're like bucket list, like, vacation and they asked me to house it and they asked me to do three things. They asked me to watch after the house, take care of the, uh, no, sorry. They, they asked me to take care of their birds, which is kind of crazy. They have birds like those people. Um, my take care of my childhood cat and, um, get rid of a bunch of like old documents that they had. And, um, they left me some money for food and all that kind of stuff and house it. And for 30 days straight, all I did was use, I never touched those documents. I never cleaned the bird cages. The last day before they came home, I cleaned them and thousands of gnats came flying out of their cages. Oh, wow. The one thing I did was take care of my childhood cat, um, but it felt like the hardest thing to do because, but I loved him more than I loved myself. Um, and so in that experience, I had a night where I wanted to essentially die through overdose. Um, and my theory was, um, I would finally feel high enough because I got into a point where I could never feel high enough. And so I spent all night using more than I'd ever used before, hoping that I would get high enough and hoping that I would OD and die. Um, and I finally got to a point where I was higher than I'd ever been. I didn't pass out or OD, but about five minutes later, I wanted more and I just started crying. I was like, I can't even do this well. Like I can't even keep up with my disease of addiction. I didn't even know it was a disease at the time, mm -hmm. but I looked myself in the mirror. I put on 50 pounds. Um, I, I, you know, I'd have to follow my trails of vomit to know what I did the day before. Um, and I was just like, I, I don't even know who you are. Um, and like I said, man, I, 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 you know, my Ted talk, I throw up a picture of that guy. And you can see how lonely and how sad and how much he doesn't want to live in his eyes. I mean, I'm high, but in the picture, but you can just see it. And, um, and after that, I was like, man, I really need to get help or I need to kill myself. But this in-between space is really not working. And someone told me about meetings. Um, I said I would check them out. I didn't. Um, then my parents did an intervention on me. I told them, screw you. I'll do it my way. 
Um, but eventually, um, when I was, I was facing home, like I was homeless, but facing living on the street, I said, okay, I'll go check out rehab because I was just trying to get 28 days of a roof over my head and some food. But when I was in rehab, I had a breakthrough and I realized, oh my God, I, I'm an addict. And this is my last chance to kind of reclaim my life. And I got real serious about recovery and been, I've been clean ever since. Right. Do you still go to meetings? Oh yeah, dude. Yep. Still go to meetings, still have a sponsor, still sponsor people. Um, you know, uh, my, when my wife met me, I had like 12 years clean and she's like, why do you go to meetings? What's wrong with you? I was like, what's wrong with me? I don't want to relapse. Yeah. yeah. And, and a lot of people don't understand that, um, you know, it's just like uh, diabetes in that you, you have to just keep taking your insulin. You don't just suddenly stop. Yeah. Um, and so for, for me, I have to keep working my program. Now, am I at risk of using today? I mean, give me a long enough timeline. If I don't, you know, work my program, if I don't talk to my sponsor, I don't, I don't go to meetings a couple years, probably, uh, or maybe a year, I'll become really dissatisfied with life. I'll be a terrible husband, terrible father. And eventually like, it'll be either, you know, taking my life or, or, or going back to using. Um, but to me, it's the best thing about me. It's the, like, I don't see it as an obligation. I see it as the best thing in my life. Yeah. No, and it's just like, sleeping or working out, right? It's just something you do. Uh, for me, no. no. Sleeping and working out are obligations that enable the rest of my life. Recovery is literally the biggest joy of my life. Yeah. Okay. It, it is like, I mean, being in a meeting and, and being reminded that um, I can surrender the outcome to things in my life and not worry about them. Seeing another addict um, completely change their life one day at a time. Like being able to wake up and have a level of peace and calm because I have, you know, the 12 steps and I have these principles and I have all these tools. Um, it is all my friends, my best friends are in recovery. Like it is the best thing about me. Now, sometimes going to a meeting can feel like working out, but it's kind of like going to an athlete who loves playing basketball and saying, you know, do you, does it feel like a chore? They'll be like, no, practice feels like a chore, but being a basketball player is a, is a dream come true. For me, being a recovering addict is a dream come true. If I could go back in time and they would offer me the chance to not be an addict, I wouldn't take it. I would take everything that I got to be where I am. Yeah, that's powerful. Um, what's, uh, what's the vision for you? What's, where are you headed? What do you want to do? What, what's the impact that you want to make here in the near future um, with, with the book and, and, uh, with everything that you're up to. So it's going to sound grandiose. And so I don't care if it happens in my lifetime or not, but we are truly on a mission to revolutionize the rules of leadership. The way that leaders have been trained to lead is archaic and broken. And we, we've been taught um, the command and control model from our military coming out of the world wars, where a general in the battlefield has to put up a, a front and pretend that they know everything and that they're strong. And that worked in an industrial economy, in a services and information economy. It doesn't. In a digitalized, digitized globalized world, it doesn't. Um, and so, you know, you now have corporate leaders in the boardroom trying to, quote unquote, wear the mask and hide their true selves. And the truth is, is that they're hiding themselves behind a, quote unquote, mask to get success the same way an addict would hide behind a mask to get the next hit. And yeah. so what we are doing is we are going around the world and we are diagnosing leaders with what we call mask addiction, which is again, philosophical, right? Like I created this 18 years ago before, before the pandemic, yeah. um, philosophical mass. But we, we actually say that the reason that people say yes, when they could say no 
is because they're addicted to saying yes. The reason that they hide a weakness is because they're addicted to hiding weaknesses. And the reason they avoid difficult conversations is they're addicted to avoiding difficult conversations. That's why we read a book or watch a TED talk, say, I should say no, I should have difficult conversations. We don't do them. It's because we're addicted to those behaviors. And so what we have created is the world's first mask rehab. And what it is, is it's a program that leaders go through to completely reform how they become an authentic leader and they learn how to do this thing called rigorous authenticity. And we teach them our step-by-step system the same way an addict learns the 12 steps. We have a step-by-step system for leaders to do that. And so our vision is in the future, companies and leaders will be certified in the mask-free system. And so that way, if you wanna work for an authentic company, you won't go just go, I hope they're authentic or they told me a really tough story. You'll know the same way you know if an apple has pesticides, it's certified organic, or if it was if it was created naturally, we'll have a certification for leaders and companies. So if you want to work for a company that's truly authentic, you want to have a boss that's truly authentic, you want employees that are truly authentic, we'll be able to certify them so you'll know. And that way we believe we will change leadership as we know it. Yeah. yeah I love it. That's that's uh that's incredible. What's uh, how close are you to the certification process? Oh my God, so far away. Yeah, um, so far. So so here's the deal. In terms of the curriculum, we have people using our process right now mm-hmm. where we have the curriculum and assessments that were necessary to substantiate a certification. Sure. Um, we can tell you whether someone's authentic based off of our assessments and our process. The problem is, is that for certifications to actually have value, they need to be valued by the world in yeah. order for them to have teeth, Right. So what, what that requires is a really effective marketing engine that makes it super clear what the benefits of that are, right? Like, so if we didn't know what certified organic meant, we wouldn't care. We would just buy the cheaper, bigger, shinier Apple, right? So tr- millions of dollars were poured into marketing to help us understand the value of that. And what that did was that created leverage for like Whole Foods over traditional groceries, right? Right. So for us, we've built the actual like, curriculum and systems to certify um, leaders as authentic as quote unquote mask free, but it's going to take us three to four years to build a marketing engine to make sure that people understand what that means and that they want it and that, and that they are able to see what a certification means for their business and all that kind of stuff. We are collecting more stories right now than we know what to do with. I just hired a new marketing manager to lead it where people are having breakthroughs, like a woman that you know, for five years, wouldn't speak up in her leadership team meeting, even though she's the COO, she yeah. used our process 28 days later, they can't get her to shut up. She's the most vocal leader in the room, yeah. right? Uh, someone who was scared of doing cold calls, like wanted to avoid difficult conversations for four years, did not pick up the phone once. She's making cold calls and making $11,000 a month. Like, and those are just like two of many examples. Um, a, a guy that is a leader at a company that went on paternity leave that felt like he had to stay connected to his phone and his email the entire time to manage the perception of his work while he's gone, using our process to say no to all of that so he could be present with his wife and his new daughter. Um, we're collecting all these stories. And so eventually we'll be able to incorporate those into the marketing engine. So that way a company will know, why do I want to make my leaders mass free? Well, here's why you actually want to do it. Um, and so it's going to take us a while to collect all those stories and make that real. Yeah, very cool. Um, as we wrap this up, I want to uh, respect your time here. Um, what is, you know, if there are one or two things that you could give to the listeners that if they were to implement right away today, would help move their life forward today, what would, what would that be? First thing is, is know what mask you are wearing. 
So those three behaviors I talked about saying yes, when you could say no, hiding a weakness, avoiding difficult conversations, knowing which one is the most powerful thing, because once you put words to it, then you can overcome it. And so I have a free assessment that people can use um, that over 3000 leaders around the world have used. And you just go to um, www.whatsmymask.com, just whatsmymask.com. And they can get a report that tells them their authenticity percentage, which mask they're wearing and tips on how to overcome it. Um, and so like what I was taught as a drug addict was awareness is like the, the first step to being able to solve the problem. You just have to have awareness of the problem. Yeah. So that's like the number one thing. And then, and then just a practical thing that doesn't require for you to engage with me at all. It's literally the next time that you are scared of what someone's going to think of you tell them I'm scared of what you're going to think of me because of X and you will be surprised at what the power, whether you're the CEO of a company or whether you're just like a mom at a PTA meeting, I don't care or a father, just tell them I'm scared of what you'll think of me and then tell them the thing that you're struggling with. And you'll be surprised at how they will let down their guard and they will reciprocate. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, what are some other ways that we can uh, find out about you, your book, yeah, my website's michaelbrodyweight.com. Um, that's B-R-O-D-Y-W-A-I-T-E.com, michaelbrodyweight.com. That's a mouthful. If you Google Michael Brody Weight, um, I got my butt kicked for 25 years because I'm the only Brody hyphen weight in the world. Um, <laughs> now my sisters got married, but it gives me great search engine optimization. So if you Google Michael Brody Weight, you'll find all kinds of my stuff and send me a note and let me know if I can help you in some way. And and take that assessment. And then if you want to check out the book, you can, you just go to great, um, you just, uh, the title of the book is great leaders of like drug addicts and you can get that at Amazon or any of the other major book retailers. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate it. Uh, thanks for being with us here today. It was an awesome conversation. Uh, hope you have a great day. Thanks man. Thanks for having me. In 05 and 06, I deployed to Kuwait. I used to wait every day for them to say, Nature going home. I miss my life, miss my wife. For 15 months, she was all alone. But when I got back, I felt out of control. Feeling entitled, I put my life on hold. I keep on drinking, so I'm sinking in a river of liquor. Me and my wife weren't all right. I didn't reconnect with it. I had a business, insurance agent, and rental properties. But is there something bigger than this? I know there's gotta be, so I invested in myself. I started seeing coaches. Life is a camera. I fixed the lens, and now I see in focus. Now my life's unrecognizable. From my life just a couple years ago. 17 plus years. Years of marriage, it's never been better than this. And we got three kids, that's who I do it for. I'm gonna be a leader. I'ma lead the way, cause I'm a firm believer. We can do anything we want. If I said it, then I meant it. I probably already did it. Consider it done. Consider it done. If you need some inspiration, you should play this. Championship Leadership Podcast. Hey, baby. Tip.